Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Monday, September 13th, 2010. Controversy be a Bruin. Just got back from Raleigh, North Carolina, and the so-called Big Tent Christianity uh, conference uh, put on by some emergent types. Some of them my friends, which, by the way, that's caused some controversy. We'll talk about that in a minute here. How can you be friends with somebody you disagree with? (laughs) Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebrew, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which is to help you to think biblically, to help you to think critically, and to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said out there. Now, that being case, that being the case, let's talk about our program today. And we'll talk about this week and other things, too. I just got back from Raleigh, North Carolina. Uh, this is uh, the, the kind of a crazy uh, back-to-back week for me. And the reason why is because there's two conferences that I believe are very important for me to be in attendance. One of them has just concluded, and one of them begins in a couple of days. And uh, as a result of it, it, it has created a hectic travel schedule for me. And it's, it's a very important part of my job here at Fighting for the Faith. The reason why is because not all theology is taught. Some of it is caught. And it's important, uh, especially considering the fact that I offer some pretty sharp biblical rebukes here, that um, that I show up where some of the people I correct and rebuke are are, are where they're at. And uh, so, as a result of it, I make a point of of a, of attending uh, either emergent conferences or seeker driven conferences. Um, not not every one of them, but I try to uh, selectively pick ones that I think that are important to be at and where the major leaders are uh, in the hopes of doing two things, learning and uh, if given the opportunity to proclaim Christ and him crucified for our sins. And so uh, as a result of it, uh, in attending these conferences over the years, I have built friendships and relationships with some folks that are completely in a different theological camp than I. And uh, the real controversy, uh, this, this has created some controversy in, the, in this regard, and that is, is that at the close of the uh, Big Tent Christianity Conference, um, I got into a, uh, for lack of a better way of putting it, I got into an argument with uh, Jay Baker 
at uh, the Big Ten Christianity Conference. We ended up talking out in the parking lot. And at the end of that, uh, Tony Jones, myself, Jay Baker, and Nadia Bowles-Weber all took a photograph in, t- in front of the Pirate Christian Radio Mobile. And Tony- it was the photograph was taken on Tony Jones's iPhone. And then he tweeted out, uh, something that made the look basically implied that we all thought that we were brothers in Christ. Well, that was an overstatement to say this, the least. As a result of it, um, there, there's been controversy regarding whether or not it's even appropriate for me to, quote, be friends with uh, some of the people who are emergent or have different uh, theologies. So we're going to address that controversy today. We're going to talk about that today. And then to piggyback onto what I'm going to say in this opening segment, uh, we're going to we're not going to wait till the second hour. Uh, as soon as I'm done with this opening segment, what we're going to do is we're going to take a break, and then we're going to launch right into our sermon review today. And so it's it the the, the timing is going to be off on this edition of Fighting for the Faith. And our sermon review uh, comes to us via the Revolution in New York City, and the pastor uh, the preaching the sermon is Jay Baker with whom I just had an argument, and uh, and in fact, he mentions that argument in the sermon, and the name of his sermon is Fundamentalism, Our Holy House of Cards. Yeah, Fundamentalism, Our Holy House of Cards. So uh, we're, I'm going to be reviewing that sermon by Jay Baker today because it ties in perfectly with what I'm going to discuss uh, in, the, in the opening part of it. Now, that being said, a little house cleaning thing. Uh, to, uh, this week's travel schedule is so um, compressed that I will not be having a new edition of Fighting for the Faith either Tuesday, Wednesday, or Thursday. But I will have a regular edition of Fighting for the Faith on Friday. And so this is a very hectic travel schedule for me this week. Um, so uh, just because of the way everything is. And so as a result of it, there will be best of programs on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, new program on Friday, and I'll, I'll uh, let you know how my second uh, conference went and, uh, and if I created any controversy by attending that. So that being the case, let me um, you know, kind of fill you in on uh, some of the bigger, you know, what, the, what I talked about just in, in passing at the opening, and that, and that is, that um, at the Big Tent Christianity Conference, took a photograph uh, with uh, Nadia Bowles-Weber, Jay Baker, and um, and Tony Jones of the Emergent Church. And unfortunately, Tony Jones you know, said something when he tweeted out the photograph. He kind of, well, not kind of, he really did overstep um, what, you know, the nature of our relationship is probably the best way to put it in his tweet. And so as a result of it, I have to, um, I, I have to explain some things and I also have to lay down some things, you know, take a look at uh, some, uh, this controversy that's swirling uh, regarding it. So here's what sparked the controversy on Thursday. I think it's September 9th uh, last week. Um, Tony Jones sent out a, a tweet that said, um, uh, disagree? Question mark. Sure, but still together in Christ. And then he mentioned me, uh, uh, Nadia Bowles Weber, Jay Baker, and uh, a link to a photograph uh, that uh, that uh, was taken in front. Where, where basically all the four of us are smiling in front of the pirate Christian radio mobile for the camera. Okay. Now here's the problem. 
Okay, and let's let's kind of clear a couple of things up here. Number one, uh, Tony Jones overstated the relationship. That that's the only way that I can put it. Now, it's not a fault of my theology that Tony Jones thinks I'm a brother in Christ. Okay, I don't reciprocate that feeling or that 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 sentiment, and the reason is uh, because we have very significant theological and doctrinal disagreements that touch on the very nature and work of Jesus Christ. And so uh, when Tony Jones sent, basically said that we're all together in Christ, that's consistent with his theology, but does not reflect my sentiment t- towards him. I do consider Tony Jones to be a friend, okay? But I don't consider him to be a brother in Christ. And so, you know, again, keep in mind, his theology, well, everybody's a brother in Christ, whether they're Mormon, um <laughs> Muslim or whatever. Um, yeah, I, I, I say that partly tongue-in-cheek, but uh, partly uh, true. Uh, uh, so his theology, we were all brothers in Christ, regardless of our big theological differences. I mean, hence the name Big Tent Christianity. Um, I do not subscribe to that. In fact, um, there are some people, I'll say this bluntly, some people in the emergent church who are Christian brothers, okay? Um and there are some people in the emergent church who are flat out heretics and they're not christian brothers they need to be called to repentance i do not consider uh, tony jones to be in the category of christian brother okay um he may be uh, but what i've read of his books and what he confesses and what he, and what he's doing I, mean, I can't consider him that that being said i still consider him to be a friend and so the question comes up well then what is your friendship built on believe it or not our friendship is actually built on disagreement and a respectful disagreement at that and you're saying can you build a friendship on that absolutely you can you can build a friendship around any different types of things and so uh when we talk when I talk about Tony Jones uh and Nadia Bulls Weber and a few other folks now I don't consider Jay Baker to be a friend he's really just an acquaintance I've only just begun having conversations with him and so to you know they would be overstating uh, the facts to say that uh, Jay Baker is a quote friend of mine uh, I would say that we're at this point after our first real theological um argument um, we're respectful disagreeers of each other's theology, but we're acquainted with each other a little bit more personally. That's probably a better way of putting it. So when I say that they're my, when I say that some of the people who are uh, in the emergent church are my friends, okay, what do I mean by that? Let me explain. As I've attended these different uh, emergent conferences, and when I attend these conferences, I go with the goal of uh, kind of a twofold goal. Number one, the goal of listening and learning, okay, uh, listening and learning and understanding the contours of the theological categories. The reason why uh, I go to, to listen and learn is because some theology is taught, some theology is actually, what, for lack of a better way of putting it, is caught. And so it's one thing to read a book. It's one thing to read a blog. It's a whole other thing to sit in a room where people all have a similar theology like this and to see how they interact with each other to see you know to see what excites them to see what their passion is to see the contours of their theology in action so to speak and and so i i always think it's really important if i'm going to be truly conversant with uh, emergent uh with emergent ideas and understand this emergence is not some 
monolithic um, doctrinal structure. It's not that at all. It's not a church in the real sense. Emergent is really a fluid network of different theologies kind of working together. And a lot of them are very liberalized theologies. Liberal, in, the irony here is, is that um, yeah, is that there's some real modernists that are are you know that are being brought into the conversation, which I think is very interesting. But that's a whole nother edition of fighting for the faith. But at the other, but see the other secondary reason why I go is by I know that by showing up and by listening and being respectful that they all know that I disagree with their theology. All you have to do is listen to my program for two, three minutes, and you know I disagree with their theology on very solid biblical grounds. Um, that being the case is that is that showing up affords me the opportunity to ask follow-up questions regarding things that are said either on the dais or in their books, and it also provides me an opportunity, when appropriate, uh, to offer a biblical counterpoint. Okay? So as a result of it, um, showing up is a big deal, okay? Now, as I've engaged in, in my conversations with emergent leaders at their conferences in order to ask follow-up questions and to offer a biblical rebuttal that upholds Christ's view regarding the inerrancy and authority of the Scriptures, presents both law and gospel, sin and grace, repentance and the forgiven, uh, forgiveness of sins, as I've gone with these really these twin goals in mind, kind of an unintended thing has happened uh, as a result of those conversations is that I've begun to know several emergent leaders on a more personal basis. And what began as a conversation at a conference, in some cases, not all, I understand this, you kind of have to look at this in, in kind of a broad spectrum kind of way. In some cases, those conversations have continued as a long-running dialogue. Um, and uh, th- and these would be conversations that have continued over the phone or via email exchange and in other ways that I've communicated. So in those conversations, um, uh, what I found is is that the nice thing about it is is that we're con- we're actually communicating with each other rather than past each other or at each other. They're actual real dialogues, not monologues with uh, between two opposing sides. And as a result of it, I've gotten to know some of the emergent leaders on a more personal level. Um, now, however, that does not mean that our families vacation together in Aspen during the holidays. That's that's not the nature of our relationship. Uh, but the reality is that those particular relationships are not built on assent. Instead, those relationships are actually built on respectful dissent. Okay, and it's actually possible to have a relationship with somebody built on dissent. They know what I believe, teach, and confess because in our conversations, I present what I believe, teach, and confess. And many times, I offer biblical rebuttal and counterpoint, and all of that is done respectfully, and it's done in in dialogue. And uh, it's done asking really tough questions. And at the same time, there's some things I've learned from the emergence along the way. But uh, let me continue here. So in each case uh, where a respectful dialogue is taking place, those with whom I am conversing know that we are theologically in two different and opposing camps. 
And ironically, sometimes I, I get phone calls from emergent leaders who are honestly seeking to understand why I so strongly and passionately disagree with their theology. This is not a relationship of Christian fellowship, and although some are willing to grant me, quote, brother status because of their the- their theology is open to everyone, I cannot, nor do I reciprocate that, that brother status. I, I can't and be true to my theology and be true to what I believe Scripture te- uh, clearly te- uh, teaches. In fact, I have the, more respect uh, for the uh, emergent leaders, uh, those in the emergent camp who are honest enough to be consistent and recognize that our theologies are not compatible with each other, and that one of us is right and the other is wrong, and it matters. It truly does matter who is right and who is wrong, and um, which leads me to just to me- quickly, briefly mention uh, that uh, that during the Big Tent Christianity Conference, when Jay Baker was on the dais, he took a shot at me from the dais because he. I think rightly, right, rightfully recognizes that that you know one of us is right, the other is wrong. There's something you know that the, these theologies are not compatible. What I believe, teach, and confess on this radio program is not emergent theology. And he he was somewhat incensed that I was there, and so after he took his shot at me, and then you know spent a few minutes of his time really you know trying to um, give his apologetic. Uh, his reasoning uh, as to why what I preach on this program is incorrect. By the way, he—I don't think he still correctly understands what it is I'm I'm preaching here, but that's okay. Uh, why he thought it was wrong, um, I f- I found him, you know, after his uh, his speech, and we ended up having a conversation that was then taken out to the parking lot, and it was a rather spirited engagement. In uh, of two completely opposing sides, and um, and the nice thing is, is that I think he was thinking about some of the things that I said because I pointed out his clear hypocrisy in his own position, which was which was I think a good starting point. But uh, so uh, understand there, some people in the emergent church, my presence at these conferences is threatening to them. Because they don't see me caving on my theology, they don't see me caving on what I am what I am proclaiming, and uh, what they do see is is that what I'm saying is completely opposed to what they're saying, and uh, and that's a, that's a great place to be at. That's a that's a fun, you can actually build a relationship and a conversation built up upon disagreement. It's absolutely possible. Okay, so um, yeah, let's see here. Um, now, with kind of all of that, you know, in mind, something you all have to keep in mind as far as different categories are concerned. A conference is not the same as a church service, okay? And uh, attending a conference does not imply Christian fellowship, okay? Which is one of the reasons why I choose to go to conferences uh, rather than showing up at, uh, let's say, uh, uh, an emergent cohort the emergent cohort that meets in Dayton, Ohio, or, or, or you know, which I think is probably one of the closer ones to me. Um, so, as far as I'm concerned, conference is basically um, think tank. It's uh, it's basically think of it as like 
continuing education credit courses extended you know the, things like that it's it's it, it there's theology being discussed but it's not being done in a church service and um the other thing is is that um is that when at these conferences there are periods of time in them where there is prayer or singing or you know something that that, that tries to uh, bring in some sacri- uh, sacred elements into it I've been perfectly consistent. Every time that that has happened, I don't participate. I don't pray with them. I don't sing with them. I, I don't ever want to create the appearance that um, our differences don't matter when it comes to the sacred. It does, and so I always respectfully or quietly bow out in in those situations, and so. Um, so as not to create the you know to create that kind of confusion, um, but th- that being said, this is important. Uh, many people in the greater emergent movement are not at these conferences because they hate Jesus or they hate the truth. In fact, many of the people that are attending these emergent conferences are there specifically because they have been deeply hurt by and they have consciously rejected legalism. And pietism. In other words, they've rejected one false form of Christianity, and sadly and tragically, they've ended up embracing what I think is clearly another false form of Christianity. And the reason why they're flirting with emergence is because many in emergence are talking about God's love, uh, which sadly is a message that is missing in the in preaching and practice in many legalistic and pietistic churches. So um, now that being said, it's important to note that the, quote, love of God that, that's being proclaimed in emergence is really nothing more than really kind of affirmation, uh, God affirming you in your sinful and broken state, and the historic biblical categories of repentance and the forgiveness of sins have been radically redefined by folks in the emergent church so that God is wrathless and the law really has no function except for to tell us to affirm others. So um, that being said, you kind of have to understand the gospel that's being presented at the emergent conferences is not the biblical gospel at all. It's a false gospel. Now, that being, the, that being said, though, um, I have a lot in common with the folks that are there because they've rejected legalism. I have a lot in common with them. My story is very similar to their stories, and over and again, as I listen to what those folks have been through, my heart breaks for them when I hear their stories, and I realize that if it were not for the grace of Christ shown to me by Dr. Rosenblatt and others, that I would either be an atheist today or or possibly an emergent, okay? You can only live under the condemning law of God so long. I mean, you can only stay under it for so long. So in other words, kind of put this bluntly here, if Dr. Rosenblatt had refused to befriend me and to talk with me and in the process get to know me personally uh, 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 on the grounds that, well, that I was a legalistic heretic, and that's what I was at the time. I was a legalistic heretic. Well, then I wouldn't be here today preaching the gospel to you on this radio program. So I'm very, very much aware of the fact that Dr. Rosenblatt took the time to befriend me and took the time to share the gospel with me, even when I was a legalist. Okay, 
So as a result of it, um, I seek to reach out in Christian kindness, and I seek to reach out in Christian love and Christian respect to these broken people in the hope of being able to proclaim to them the true gospel uh, in light of Christ's view of Scripture with a proper understanding of both the law and the gospel, sin and grace, and and repentance and the forgiveness of sins. And it is not inconsistent with the cross and the gospel to reach out to emergence in love. It is not inconsistent with the cross to reach out to emergence in kindness and to be friendly towards them and to be respectful to them. In fact, that's exactly what the cross calls us to do. Knowing that, knowing this though, some will listen and some will not. Some will want to engage me in conversation while others will not. That being the case, I don't spend my time constantly trying to speak with those who will not listen and those who, after hearing my apologetic for sound biblical doctrine, law and gospel, sin and grace, if, 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 if they're not interested in continuing the conversation after, you know, after hearing that I disagree with them and want to engage them in conversation where I can you know, there there can be a challenge to some of the things they're putting forward. Um, I don't continue, continue to pursue that. The, the reason why is that Titus 3, uh, verses 10 and 11 say this. It says, As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful and he's self-condemned. So despite the fact that I'm saddened by the outcome of those conversations that I have with some emergence where... I try to engage them in this type of conversation, but it doesn't go anywhere. Um, I, I'm saddened that they don't they don't go anywhere. However, I still pray for those people, and I view my conversation with them as a learning opportunity, and it, that help me better learn and understand the arguments that they've constructed against the historic gospel, so that I can better defend the Christian faith by refuting those arguments here at Fighting for the Faith and other places where I have an opportunity to either write or speak about it. Now, an example of of somebody whom I've had two conversations with, but I can tell you there there's there it would be fruitless to keep going on, would be my two conversations with Brian McLaren. Okay, I've now uh, had two good conversations with Brian McLaren. And I can tell you with all certainty that there, there ain't, there's, there's no reason to keep pursuing the, those conversations. He's made it perfectly clear in no uncertain terms what he believes and that he's not open. He is not open to a dialogue in which there would be an exchange back and forth that challenged his his doctrine and the things that he's teaching. He's not interested in that, not at all. Okay, so that I mean that's an example of what I'm talking about. Others, on the other hand, um, for instance, in my 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 friendship with Nadia Bowles Weber, this is a this is a friendship that is built on mutual disagreement. She is, uh, I mean, for lack of a better way of putting, it, using her own terms. She says she she really feels like she needs to be in conversation with those who are conservative, those who have opposing views to her. She sees value in that friendship. And as a result of it, 
we have a we have a friendship built upon disagreement. In all reality, I I I don't think my friendship with Nadia would be as important to her if I held the same theology that she does. Not in her own words. I mean, that's what she's what she's expressed to me. She values my disagreement with her. So as a result of that, we're still having a dialogue. We're we still have a friendship. We still are having a conversation. And um, you know, I, I I don't pull out my bullhorn and try to blow her you know her hair back and repent her bird. No, no, no. That's not the nature of that. That being said, she knows I disagree with her because I say that. She knows I have a different view of scripture because I share that with her. And yet there's there's a lot more common ground with Nadia than there is with Brian McLaren. And that's all I can really say about this. Now, something I don't talk about here very often at Fighting for the Faith, and that is is that and I don't normally discuss this, but I think it's important for you all to know this, that um that I do have accountability. I have a theological safety net in place. And uh before I go into these uh, situations, I spend a lot of time talking to my uh, to those who who hold me accountable. In fact, there are three pastors who help keep me accountable in both orthodoxy and orthopraxy. And one of those pastors I speak with on almost a daily basis. And I, this is something I don't normally share, but uh, this is something that I think is important for you all to know. Now, regarding my friendship with the emergence, regarding my attendance at their conferences. I've spoken with all three of my pastoral, uh, the men that hold me accountable, and, regarding this incident and regarding this uh, this scandal, so to speak. And I've carefully worked through with them the relevant passages that that pertain to this. And all three are in agreement that my actions are consistent with not only biblical teaching but also with the gospel. First, um, uh, let's, and let's kind of work through this. It's important for you to know I'm acting in the role as a, of a Christian apologist. I'm not acting in the role of a pastor. I'm acting in the role of a Christian apologist, which actually affords me just a little bit more freedom biblically than uh, than those guys. But it's not it's not unlimited freedom. It's freedom within particular parameters. And uh, and I'm I'm not acting in the role of a pastor. And this what I'm doing is not church. Conference is not church. Keep that in mind. Second, my conversations are for the express purpose of learning and providing dissenting a dissenting biblical view uh, to the theology that is being proclaimed at the at the conferences or by these different le- uh, leaders. And this is clearly expressed. My dissenting view is clearly expressed and is clearly understood. And the conversations and slash friendships that have resulted in my showing up are 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 not based upon affirmation. They're actually, in fact, based upon strong, loving, and respectful dissent. And you know, if if you really doubt this, I mean, the reality is, I strongly proclaim and defend Christ and Him crucified for our sins. And lovingly call my emergent friends to repent of their false doctrine and their false theology and to be forgiven as I am forgiven. You know, some want to, uh, some of them want to hear more and the conversations continue and friendships actually grow and some, some of them grow pretty deep. Uh, the, the, the reality that is those, this does take a toll on me. And the reason it, it takes a toll on me is because it breaks my heart that these people whom I've come to know and love hang on to 
some doctrine that is contrary to the Scripture, or in some cases that they're flat out opposed to what the the Bible teaches. And as a result of it, I am, I, I deeply, deeply am um, concerned for them, both in the long term and the short term. And it's my love and concern for them that compels me. They are my neighbors. It is my love for my emergent neighbors that compels me to attend these conferences and to get to know these people and to befriend them. I mean, when the emergent leaders say that they're in a, quote, conversation, they're not kidding. Emergence a lot of times really is that. It's it's a conversation. The reality is, though, that many of those who are participating in the emergent conversation are desperate to hear the gospel. When Nadia presented, I know that Nadia is rough around the edges. I know that this is a woman who, to um, to some you know to somebody who's grown up in church, she is rough, she is in your face, and she is crass. I know that. But something she said really, really resonated with me because I've had that same experience. This is a this is a woman who tried American legalism out. And she describes Jesus as the abusive boyfriend Jesus. Yeah, we make fun of the fact that, you know, there's songs out there that turn Jesus into our bearded girlfriend. But I think Nadia more correctly points it out because when Jesus becomes our bearded girlfriend, Jesus becomes our abuser. Jesus becomes our abusive boyfriend or girlfriend. And I've been through that, and she's been through that. And and what she needs is the gospel. And the funny thing is is Nadia knows long gospel. She... uh, uh, Just wish you could see the same thing I do. Jay Baker, same thing. He's been around the legalistic track. He, I mean, when you talk to him, when you listen to him, when you understand what he has been through, he has been, he's done the whole legalism thing. But the problem is, is that they equate believing that Jesus Christ literally died and literally rose again for our sins. They equate those doctrine doctrines as only being compatible with legalistic Christianity. And so in chucking some of those doctrines, they think they're getting rid of that abusive boyfriend Jesus that's taught by legalistic pietism. They're not in Funny enough, they're kind of exchange. They they've got a kinder and gentler Jesus who tells us to go out and love it, love the you know, see God in the other, and love the poor, and all that kind of stuff. But all that's still a to do list. It's just not a to do list that has to do with personal piety. You know, at least you know, personal sins like you know, smoking, drinking, dancing, chewing, sex, and all that kind of stuff. It's just it's it's oh. So here's the deal: people are they've gone down the legalistic route. They've tried the do-it-yourself, pull-yourself-up-by-your-bootstraps, make-yourself-holy-and-pleasing-to-God kind of Christianity, which is a false 
kind of Christianity. It's not the biblical gospel. They've tried it. It doesn't work. It causes you to despair. And the emergent church is offering a conversation where you can learn about a kinder, gentler Jesus who may or may not have really actually risen from the dead. It doesn't really matter. It's all about being kinder and gentler to your neighbors kind of stuff. And it sounds nicer, but it's still not the biblical gospel. It's still not the biblical gospel. So what's happened is is that people have been hurt and wounded by a false kind of Christianity, and the emergent church is giving them space to come and participate in a conversation where they can learn about a different way of viewing Jesus that's still not the gospel. And it's sad. They're desperate to hear it. And the reality is is that if Christians who don't know the biblical gospel don't show up to these conversations, then the only gospel these folks are going to hear is the false gospel of liberalism or liberalism 2.0. So I'm compelled by the love of Christ to show up and to take a seat at some of these events where I can do so with the understanding that I'm there as somebody who dissents so that I can give voice to the biblical gospel. I do this out of love and a deep, deep concern for my emergent neighbors. As somebody who has experienced the same kind of abuse that they've experienced, I get it. I've been there. I've done that. And I know, just like they know, on a deep, personal level, it doesn't work. But what they're being given in exchange is still not the gospel. And I understand that there's people out there who are concerned. How dare you say that you you have a friendship with these folks? I would be lying if I said it wasn't a friendship. But it's a friendship based upon dissent, not mutual, mutual affirmation. It's it's a friendship that gives me the opportunity to be in conversation where the biblical gospel and repentance and the forgiveness of sins is offered as the solution. Not watering down the Bible, reimagining it, rethinking it, mythologizing it, remythologizing it, uh, demythologizing any of that nonsense. And the reality is, is that some in the emergent still think I'm a legalist. <laughs> That's the irony of it. That's the irony of it. But the reality is is that where legalism fails is that it doesn't recognize the gospel for Christians. And they don't even understand what the biblical gospel truly is. It's apparently the gospel is just to kind of get you into the fun park of all this self-righteousness. Where liberalism fails is that it do- it, it doesn't understand the law. And so it quiets the law by basically undermining the authority of Scripture. Yeah, yeah, it quiets Sinai, all right, where in legalism all you hear is Sinai, you never hear the gospel. In liberalism, all you hear is something that sounds kind of loving and kind, but it doesn't make any sense in light of God's Word, because every time you read a passage that talks about your individual sin or Jesus literally rising from the dead for your justification, you have to engage in some kind of liberal code. You have to code it so that it doesn't mean what it says. It quiets Sinai, all right, but you have to learn a complete, you have to basically learn how to think upside down and backwards in order to get to that point. 
The biblical Christianity I'm proclaiming calls you to affirm two things that seem opposed to each other but are not. It calls you to affirm that Jesus Christ historically died and rose again on the cross. It calls you to affirm and with certainty that you are a sinner and that Christ died for your sins. Law and gospel, they seem opposed to each other, but when you understand the proper under what what the Bible teaches about the law, it can't save you. You're not saved by the law, you're saved by grace. And it means that literally, literally, literally. And so, yeah, I have some friends that are emergent. Sadly, sadly, I can't call them Christian brothers and sisters, despite the fact that they are willing to extend that to me. I appreciate and and recognize that they're they're being consistent with their theology. They're not my Christian brothers and sisters, but they're my friends because we're in conversation. And some of them I'm in conversation with, some of them I'm not. Some of them don't want to be in conversation with me. And there's nothing I can do for them at that point because they won't listen. But for those who will listen, I will give them the love of Christ in deed as well as word. Because if all I give them is the love of Christ in word but not deed, then I'm not being consistent with the gospel. And yeah, I understand that some of these people are major leaders in the emergent movement. Yet, some of them are willing to listen, and they want to hear what I have to say. And when I open my mouth, I will give them Christ and Him crucified. That's what I do. And what I'm doing is not a compromise of the gospel I preach. It is the very living out of the gospel that I preach day in and day out here at Fighting for the Faith. You know, I'm, I'm reminded of the book Huckleberry Finn. Yeah, I'm reminded of the book Huckleberry Finn here. And work with me. This will be my last metaphor before we go into the break and then our sermon review. In the book Huckleberry Finn, Huck is torn to pieces about the fact that he's helping he's helping a black man run from slavery. And he had heard in church that that was a sin to help a black, you know, to help a black man be free. And he wrestles with himself in that text. And he basically comes to the conclusion that, well, if what I'm doing is a sin, then I'll be damned. I'll have to burn in hell. In a very real way, if I cannot reach out in love and respect and be friends with, and I mean friendship built upon dissent at this point, with emergent heretics, if I can't do that because it's somehow contrary to the gospel, somehow contrary to the love of Christ, then we've got a big problem. We've got a big problem. I'm not affirming their theology. I'm there to dissent. 
to their theology. I'm not there to affirm them as brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm there to proclaim the gospel so that they might be brothers and sisters in Christ. If I am in error, then show me from the clear teachings of the Word of God that I'm in error here. Some might point to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Let me read it in context, and I'll begin with the punchline. The punchline to 1 Corinthians chapter 5 is verse 13. Purge the evil person from among you. This is talking about church discipline. Purge the evil person from among you. I can tell you this, if Tony Jones were in the LCMS, he'd probably be kicked out. If Nadia Bowles-Weber were in the LCMS, she would be kicked out too. For very good reasons, she would be purged. So this passage doesn't apply because they're outside of the purview of the church that I'm a member of. Okay, But let me, let me explain. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Okay, so that's, that's the context. There is somebody who is sleeping with his father's wife and they're not ashamed, and they're not practicing church discipline. Instead, they're kind of arrogant about it. Paul writes, For though I'm absent in body, I'm present in spirit, and, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Now I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Now, not at all meaning the sexually immoral that are in the world or the greedy and the swindlers or the idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the whole world. But now I'm writing for you to not associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? It is those inside the church whom you are to judge. God judges those outside. So purge the evil person from among you. So the whole context here is one of church discipline, to purge the evildoer from among you. The reality is those in the emergent church are outside of the church, and I don't attend their, quote, church services as if I'm their brother. I attend their conferences in the role of Christian apologists with a hope, with a hope of learning in the hope of being able to proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins. That's not inconsistent with 1 Corinthians 5 at all. It's consistent with sharing the gospel. I will treat them as humans, not as demons, because they're not demons. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. Our battle is against 
principalities and powers, not people. So I will fight for these people, and I will love these people. And in my love for them, I will proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name and share the good news of Christ and him crucified and risen for our justification and our sins. Some friendships won't last. Eventually they'll come to a head. Enough is enough. I don't want to hear about your Christ. I don't want to hear about forgiveness of sins. I don't want to hear your theology anymore. Yeah. Some will continue, and I hope that they will. But as long as they have a free and open conversation, then I plan to attend some of these conferences to share Christ. If I'm in error, show me from the scriptures where that is wrong. All right, we're up on our first break. (laughs) I've almost gone an hour. (sighs) When we come back, we're going to be listening to a sermon by Jay Baker. This ties into what I was talking about. And the reason why this ties in is because this is the sermon that Jay Baker preached yesterday. And in this sermon, he discusses our argument, our discussion. He mentions me by name. You'll see what I'm saying. Anyway, if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Sissioprified religiosity won't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Listening to the Emergence Sports Network here on Pirate Christian Radio. You've tuned in just in time to catch today's Emergence Ball match between the Pomo Bombers and the Majestic Mystics. Today's match is proudly brought to you by Rex Quando's Bible Pants. There's the buzzer, and they're off. McLaren dribbles a pigskin down to first base, takes out his putter, and... Whoa! Jones checks McLaren against the boards and then passes to Paget in left field. But wait, Boo's Weber is charging from the 10-yard line, and she slam-dugs from the foul line. That's a birdie. The crowd is going wild. When was the last time you saw something like that? I don't think I've ever seen anything like this. Okay, play is resuming. There's Rollins. He serves to Bell. Bell snatches the snitch, and then Hail Mary passes to McLaren. McLaren is in the end zone. Oh, and he slaps it back to third base. 
Tickle grabs her wicket and then punts one out into center court. It looks like Jones and Padgett are double-teaming Bowles Weber. He doesn't have a shot, so she slices one off into the rough. McLaren is there to make the safety, but Padgett grabs McLaren's face mask and then throws down to second base. What a brilliant save that was. Jones takes out his driver, then sends one out to midfield. Tickle headbutts the ball and then sends it back to McLaren. He vaults over the pummel horse. Oh, and he sticks the landing! Unfortunately, the degree of difficulty wasn't that high, but McLaren racked up seven brownie points. Tickle sets up for the kickoff. But wait, Jones is trying to steal third base. Tickle slapshots the ball back to Bulls Weber, but Jones is safe! He's safe! That means it's going to be third down with 44 meters to the pin. Looks like this match is going to go into sudden death. Dr. Rod Rosenblatt discussing the church's need for world-class scholarship and the unique way in which the British academic model offered at the Wittenberg Institute can help provide you with a top-level postgraduate theological degree. Christians are dependent on good scholarship in a way that sometimes we forget. Think of Tyndall House in England. Some of those evangelicals were so ruled away from the big table conversation in the Church of England that they had to develop graduate training under particular guys who had a high view of Christ and a high view of Scripture. Over the years, they did marvelous stuff with individual young scholars who came there to be trained. So what's the difference between the European model and the American model? The European is used to saying things like, I studied under so-and-so, and the American, uh, that's pretty foreign. And I'm not here talking about the diploma mills. I'm talking about somebody who is tutored, something like Oxford or at Cambridge, and uh, walked through graduate work. If you would like more information about the Wittenberg Institute's British-styled research master's degree, then visit them on the web at wittenberginstitute.org forward slash PCR, or call them at area code 425-533-8659. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. All right, we're back. 
warning. <laughs> if you think that the folks in the emergent church are not your neighbors, they are. They are. And Christ died for them. Need to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. Yeah, by the way, I don't claim to have all the answers. And I, I, if I'm wrong on this, show me where I'm wrong from the Scriptures. That's kind of what you have to do there. Anyway, I uh, need to remind you, Fighting for the Faith, listener-supported radio. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. You know how that works. One says donate, the other says join our crew. The join our crew button is uh, there so that you can sign up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith. The second button uh, is there. It says donate. It allows you to specify the amount that you would like to contribute in order to continue to help keep us on the air. Okay, so that you can get a better picture of what it is that I do at these conferences. Jay Baker and I had a a passionate, heated discussion, and um, it was sparked by the fact that uh, he was incensed that I was present at the uh, Big Tent Christianity Conference. He singled me out, mentioned, <laughs> took a couple shots at me, and uh, and well, he used his time, part of his time on stage, to take issue with quote fundamentalism. Okay. I sought him out, you know, if he's going to take a shot at me, I mean, let's, I mean, let's, let's, uh, you know, let's, well, I should, how do I put it? I, I'm not saying I want to rumble with him, but the idea was, is I wanted to make sure that he correctly understood my position. And it, I saw that as an, an invite to having an emergent conversation, if you would. And it was a rather heated discussion, passionate a little argument that we had that went uh, that started in the lobby there and worked its way out to the um, uh, to the parking lot. And I think there was a few people who over, were overhearing the conversation who were a little bit worried, <laughs> but it was it was fine. So I mean this I mean this will give you an idea of you know the the thing is is that I'm not compromising my theology and I'm going to take my theology to the road and I'm going to take it into their territory when it's. Uh, it's safe to do so, so to speak, you know, in a way that, you know, he got it. He was he he understand perfectly well. I wasn't there to affirm uh, what was being said there. And, and as a result of it, we had an exchange and he talks about it in the sermon. So um, that being the case, I, I need to do what we normally do here. And that is, is that we need to do this. Hang on. Wouldn't be fighting for the faith unless I did this. The good, the bad, the ugly, we review them all here at Fighting for the Faith. We are an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via the revolution in New York City, New York. Jay Baker is the one delivering the sermon. The name of the sermon, Fundamentalism, Our Holy House of Cards. You'll get a peek inside of emergent liberal theology. 
I will provide biblical counterpoints as necessary, but you will also hear his side of his take on the fact, uh, our conversation. And just ask yourself this question. Based upon Jay Baker's telling of our conversation, was I there to affirm him as a brother in Christ? Or was I there to lovingly be a voice for the biblical gospel? One that is very different than the gospel he preaches. Very different than the theology he confesses and teaches. I'll let Jay Baker be my strongest um, evidence, my strongest witness, if you would. So without any further ado, let me kill this music here. Here is Jay Baker, Revolution, New York City, sermon entitled, Fundamentalism, Our Holy House of Cards. Here we go. Um, Well, today, um, I was thinking about what to talk about, and I've been reading this book, um, The Courage to Be by Paul Tillich, and uh, I've really been enjoying it. And there was a few things that... uh, a few things in this book that I thought are some great ideas that I'd like to talk about and share with you and maybe even have you guys share some things with us. So let's get into it. Oh, one more thing. Johnny Cash died seven years ago today. That's pretty sad, right? I miss him. So today is dedicated to Johnny Cash. Christian fundamentalists flee from their freedom of asking and answering for themselves. Okay, now he's quoting from Paul Tillich's book entitled uh, The Courage to Be. Paul Tillich, you know, uber-modernist liberal of, you know, the 1950s and 60s. So that's, you know, who we're dealing with here in this sermon. And this is forming the basis of his teaching there at the Revolution. To a situation in which no further questions can be asked, and their answers to previous questions are imposed on them authoritatively. In order to avoid the risk of asking and doubting, they surrender the right to ask and to doubt. They surrender themselves in order to save their spiritual lives. They escape from their freedom. In order to escape the anxiety of meaninglessness. Um, and this is also this is from from the courage to be. And I was thinking about Christian fundamentalism and sometimes just Christianity in general. I don't even think you have to necessarily be a fundamentalist or any of faith at that. But we flee from our feet from our freedom uh, because we give up the right to ask questions. Okay, now, I know what type of, quote, fundamentalism he's talking about. This is the sit down, shut up, don't ask questions, you're going to do what you're told to do, the holy man is speaking kind of Christianity. And what what is this? This is just legalism, okay? This is legalistic pietism, and true Christianity, true biblical Christianity does allow for people to ask questions. It allows for people to test and see if the claims are true. And not only that, I think true sound biblical Christianity gives really good answers 
to the questions that people have that, that come up regarding the doubts that they may have. The problem is, is this is where it gets really bad, is that the, the legalist as well as the biblical Christian both believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, both believe, they may even believe in the sufficiency of Scripture, uh, both believe, you know, that Christ literally died and literally rose again. And that, you know, and so both the legalist and the biblical Christian believe those claims. But the thing is, is that the legalist uses the Bible to pound people into submission using the law and uses the law, basically believes that we are made pleasing to God by our keeping of the law. That ultimately, you know, Jesus is our example to follow, things of that nature. Okay, they give, they, they, when they read the passages about salvation as a gift and stuff like that, uh, they, they really don't understand the gospel correctly. They don't understand it at all that the gospel is to be applied to Christians, not just unbelievers. And as a result of it, the emphasis is always on personal holiness, personal piety, personal progress in sanctification. Now, it's okay to talk about personal holiness and things like that. God's law demands that. But if the Christian life is all about the things I have to do and what Christ hasn't done for me and the good works that flow from the gospel, then what happens is is that things get out of kilter. And as a result of it, people truly do get hurt because it's a false gospel that's being preached to them. It's a gospel a gospel of self-righteousness and of works righteousness. And the reality is is that those who are coming out of that who still want to keep some kind of semblance of Christianity, they know that they're not living up to it. They know they can't keep the law. And so as a result of it, when they're critiquing, they see as part and parcel of legalism the, 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 the historic truth claims of Christianity also. And so they, they not only, well, they attack those historic truth truth claims as well as legalism the legalism i get uh, but the thing is is that they can't seem to in their mind tease out the difference between the two i think jay baker suffer, suffers from that in some cases here but let's continue we are afraid to experience the fact that maybe meaning will change or meaning will cease to be and in order to escape the anxiety of meaningless, sometimes we allow ourselves to just jump in to something where all the questions have been answered for ourselves. It goes on to say, now we are no longer lonely, not in doubt of our whole self and meaning, no longer in despair. We are affirmed by participating in a spiritual life which I would say church, any type of religion, etc. Meaning is saved, but self is sacrificed. You know, so often we, we allow our theology to be like a house of cards. And if you pull one out, the whole thing falls down. Um, and I was that way, but it's, it, was, it was kind of a slow way. It was like kind of like a car got picked from the top and a couple fell down. <laughs> and then it kept getting lower and lower, and I kept getting more worried about this. Um, 
you know, I remember when me and Vince first started working together and we'd have these long talks about the virgin birth and resurrection and Vince would say stuff like, well, you know, if the resurrection happened or not, it's, you know, that's not the whole point for me. And I would be like, if the resurrection didn't happen, then it's all over. I quit. I have nothing I want to do with it. It's a big lie. <clears throat> Jay, you were right. Okay. Back in the day when that's what you thought, if the resurrection didn't happen, then it's all a big lie. That's exactly what the Apostle Paul said. That is exactly what the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Okay, Now, do you think Paul meant what he said here? Let me read 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'm going to start at verse 12. Here's what Paul writes. He says, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there, there is no resurrection of the dead? Apparently in the in the Corinthian church there were some saying he, he can't mean that literally you can't, I mean, seriously that there's gonna we're gonna bodily raise from the dead now keep in mind to the Greek mind this is awful okay many in in Greek philosophy saw that believed that the soul was good and that the flesh was bad and this idea of being resurrected from the dead that I mean that's just does it doesn't make any sense not in their in their Platonic way of thinking okay. Paul says, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. And you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ, well, they've perished, and if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Liberalism says, "Oh, it does." Yeah, listen, you're kind of missing the whole point of of Christianity here. If if you know, who cares if Jesus actually rose or didn't? That's just ridiculous. It doesn't matter. Actually, it does matter. Now. We can try to sweep this away by basically saying, oh, well, Chris, you're just a literalist. Well, that's the point I'm trying to make is that Paul was being a literalist when it came to Christ's physical resurrection. If Christ is not raised, then our faith is futile. It's in vain. All of this is in vain, and we should be pitied. The whole thing is a sham. And to basically craft a Christianity where it doesn't matter whether Christ has physically been raised from the dead, that's not biblical Christianity. And that's not the gospel that was preached by the apostles. Not Peter, not James, not John, not Paul, not any of them. They all were eyewitnesses to the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave. So this is cardinal. And what Jay used to believe but doesn't believe anymore is that it doesn't matter 
He used to believe it mattered. Now he 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 says it doesn't matter. So he's moved from one camp. But see, keep in mind, in the camp that he was in, it was legalism. It was I'm saved because I've prayed a prayer. I you know it it, it was Pelagian legalistic Pietism, and wrapped up in word faith heresy too. And so when things went bad for Jim Baker, Jim and Tammy Faye Baker with the PTL scandal, well, Jay got to experience the dark side of legalism. He's rejected that, but he's also, in in rejected that, he's also rejected the bodily resurrection of Christ. Now, he's either right or he's wrong, and it matters this difference matters. That's why I do this radio program, because these distinctives matter. Let's continue. Forget it. You know, I was like, done. I'm going to go start a record store and take my toys and go home and stop caring about people altogether. Um... But over the time of our relationship and friendship, we've uh, I've started to see a beauty beyond these like need for concrete facts. I've decided to, I've seen God and Christ bigger than stories, you know, bigger than just even the Bible. I've been able to experience love in a new uh, new way. So he's rejected all of that and embraced some new irrational way of understanding God and Christ that's beyond what the Bible says. That doesn't make any sense. It, it, this, I mean, this, you know, a Christianity without a risen Savior isn't Christianity. It's not. And that's exactly what the Apostle Paul said, and he should know. He is an eyewitness to the resurrection of Christ because Christ appeared to him on the road to Damascus. And slowly I'm able to uh, allow my faith to not even have anything to do with that, that uh, the house of cards. But it's not easy. goes on to say in this book, Now we have made the conquest of doubt a matter of sacrifice, and the freedom of self is also sacrificed. You know, we've made the conquest of doubt a matter of sacrifice. And the freedom of self is also sacrificed. When we decide no longer to doubt, we we lose ourselves. Because there's a lot of beauty in doubt. That's how we grow. That's why we ask questions. Okay, listen. When it comes to doubt, I've already talked about this, but let me just remind everybody. It's good to doubt the right things. Doubt Doubt is not a virtue in and of itself. Okay, for instance, if you doubt that the earth is round, that's some pretty dumb doubt. Okay, yeah, yeah the, I know the flat earthers are out there. Okay, yeah, I, I know that there's, they're, they're out there. They're very interesting to talk to, but their, their doubt is misplaced. So doubt is a fine tool if it helps you doubt the right things. Faith is a fantastic thing as long as the object of your faith is is worth having. Okay, if you have faith that the 
moon is actually made out of green cheese, then your faith is misplaced. Yet if you have faith that Jesus Christ was crucified and rose bodily from the grave for your sins and for your justification, then your faith is well-placed. So doubt is only as good as the thing that you're doubting, and faith is only as good as the thing that in which you are trusting in. Because that's what faith is. It's trust. So if you're doubting that legalism is true, that's a good doubt to have. If you are doubting that Christ rose again from the dead bodily, that's some bad doubt. That's the kind of doubt that undermines faith altogether and changes and warps and twists Christianity into something that it's not. Because if Christ is not raised, our faith is in vain. The scriptures say. So you think, well, that's a house of cards. No, that's just reality. I mean, because I mean, the whole thing collapses if Jesus is a liar because he's not God in human flesh, and he didn't die on the cross for our sins if he's a liar, because liars are just... You understand what I'm saying? Remember the whole David Koresh thing? A lot of people had faith in David Koresh, that he was the Messiah. That's some badly placed faith. They should have had doubt regarding him, not faith. Jesus, on the other hand, rose from the dead. The eyewitness testimony bears that out. So trusting in that and believing their testimony is well-placed faith. To doubt that testimony is to undermine the Christian faith and turn it into something that it's never been. When we surrender to a system that says we have all the answers and all the questions that have been answered, we have them here too, and we have the authority to tell you what they are and how they are and how it's supposed to be. And it seems like a very... Now, this is where it gets interesting. He's operating from a double standard. Okay, let me show it to you. Okay, ultimately, all unbelief is is a form of irrationality and, and, and a double standard. And here's how it works. Okay, so Paul Tillich is authoritatively stating that doubt is the right thing and that it's in doubt that we have freedom and he has the authority to say so. And my question is, where does where did he get this idea from? How does he know any of this to be true? And why is he judging those who doubt that doubt is really the thing that sets us free? You see what I'm saying? Very safe place to do what you're told, to lose yourself in a community. You know, that's one of the things about revolution is I see that we really want to strive towards community. But I want to see, you know, the individual... As, as important as the whole. You know, I want us to be a, you know, each part, you know, um, everyone together, but I don't want us to lose ourselves in that. You know, there might be some things that we lay at the door, at the front of the door, so we can be a family and so we can be a community, but we don't want to see ourselves lose. Our, I don't want to see you lose yourself here. I want you to be who God created you to be in all your uniqueness, and I think we all want to see that. So fundamentalism correlates to spiritual self-surrender, loss of self, loss of spirit. Um, can, can you substantiate that from God's word rather than Paul Tillich? Seriously, I mean, you know, what kind of fundamentalist are you talking about? There, there's different stripes. 
historically. I mean, B.B. Warfield and J. Gresham Machen were considered, quote, fundamentalists, yet they have nothing in common with, uh, they're not legalists at all. They were not legalists. They were Reformed Calvinists. The, the, early, the early, quote, fundamentalists were those who affirmed biblical authority, the virgin birth, Christ's bodily resurrection from the grave, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ's work alone. Um, so, yeah, I mean, historically, I mean, the, when the, quote, fundamentalist movement was it launched, those, it was those who were defending the teachings of the historic Christian faith, especially as summarized in the creeds, against the modernist liberals who were denying the historicity of the scripture, who, who were denying uh, you know, the authorship of particular books and going with liberalized theories uh, for how the Bible came to us, denying miracles and things like that, because those, their, their ideas matter. If one is true, then the other cannot be true. It matters. And, you know, but nowadays, I mean, the, the you know, the fundamentalists are basically, I mean, it, it could be anything from your legalist to your snake-handling Pentecostals out there in the, uh, in the bayous of Louisiana. So uh, what kind of fundamentalists are you talking about? And by the way, uh, the J. Gresham Mason type, type? A fundamentalist? Those guys uh, asked some pretty darn good questions. They had some pretty well-placed doubts. Some very good reasons to believe that the Bible should be believed when it comes to the virgin birth, the authority of Scripture, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ's work alone, Christ's penal substitutionary atonement his bodily resurrection from the grave on the third day after he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. Did they claim to have all of the answers? No. Did they claim that the answers revealed to us by God and his word can be trusted? Yes. And it doesn't just have to be fundamentalism, but just selling out to anything wholeheartedly and deciding that that's the, the ultimate knowledge, the final knowledge, and we're done, can allow you to lose one yourself. But I think losing its loss of the spirit is something that's very important to look at, especially as followers of Christ, you know, led by the spirit, you know, the spirits within us. It was a gift that Christ gave us. So the, uh, the, what's the authority then that he's speaking of? Apparently getting direct revelation from God that may contradict God's word, but it's it's from the Spirit. You have to go as the Spirit leads you. It's this thing that draws me to ask questions. It's the thing that says, my love for my neighbor is more important than maybe what this, this Bible, I can't see something in here, and if it gets in my way of loving someone, I need to put it down. So if the Bible gets in the way of you loving your neighbor, he needs to put the Bible down. Doesn't the Bible teach you to love your neighbor as yourself? Why would the Bible get in the way of loving your neighbor? How are you defining love is my question. You know, the Spirit is leading me to look past the laws. You know, like when Jesus would 
heal on the Sabbath or do things like that. You know, it was like moving beyond the this is what you're supposed to do to what, yeah, these are good ideas and good thoughts, but what's really important is compassion and mercy. What's really important is is, is the self experiencing someone else's self. The important thing is the self experiencing someone else's self. Jay, where did you get that idea from? That's not taught in the Bible. Which which Jesus was doing. I mean, going into areas where Matthew's house and things like that were seen ceremonially unclean, you know, but it was because he was there. He said, I'm here to do the work of the Father. When I think of the woman at the well, I think how uh, one of the translations says... He had to go through Samaria. Even though he wasn't supposed to go through Samaria, even though he wasn't supposed to be with those people or it would be amongst those people, he had to go. And uh, that's being aware of the Spirit. And that's being aware of self. He had to go. The Spirit guided him. Okay, now that's an interesting interpretation. Uh, which of the apostles uh, interpreted that portion of the gospel that way? Where is this doctrine clearly taught in the scriptures? It's not. Where was this taught in the uh, in the ancient church? It wasn't. I'm trying to remember what it shows is. <laughs> to sacrifice the freedom of self. It shows the anxiety with with what was supposed to be conquered by the removal of doubt. By attacking with the weapon of disproportionate violence. Okay, what, what, I'm, I, I had a hard time with this one, so I kept rewriting it, and then now it looks like a mess, but I'm going to be calm. I'm going to take a deep breath. <sighs> but when we give up these things... When we give up the right to question and the right to doubt, and we decide to follow a fundamentalist way, it says it shows the anxiety with what was supposed to be conquered by the removal of doubt. So the anxiety still says, even though we've gotten rid of the anxiety of doubting, by attacking the weapon of disproportionate violence, those who disagree and demonstrate by their disagreement elements of doubt, that the fundamentalist sees mirrored in their own life, which must surpass, suppress, which they must suppress in themselves, and because they must suppress self, they must suppress others. The anxiety forces them to persecute others. Is this does it make sense to everybody? If not, you can go. No, it doesn't, because this isn't taught in the scriptures at all. These are these are fine postulations that put out by Paul Tillich. Um, but I mean, if this is not what God has revealed in his word, why should I believe it? And notice the word persecution. Okay. Pay close attention. So my question comes back. I mean, my doubts arise as I listen to, uh, Jay Baker here. How was he defining love for neighbor and how was he defining persecution? We've got two words now that I would love to get clarification on how he's, Defining them. Maybe we can figure it out as we listen more to this sermon. No, it doesn't make sense. I'm not following. Pete, are you following? 
Amen. <laughs> no one else is willing to go. They don't know. Um, you know, and I, and I think about this. I think, I, I, you know, that fear and that anxiety forces us to persecute others because maybe they don't believe what we believe or, or say what, you know, have the same dogma or the same the, theology or there's a, fr- a, a fear of, of the house of cards falling down. Of everything we've built our life on, you know, if we start doubting God or we start doubting, you know, these these particular like unnegotiable, unnegotiable, negotiable, is that even a word? Unnegotiable <laughs> uh, verses in the Bible. You know, we start making these really crazy questions and and it seems like, now, when I just read First uh, Corinthians fifteen, was Christ's bodily resurrection from the dead, according to the Apostle Paul, a non-negotiable teaching? Did Paul say, "Listen, if you believe that Jesus was raised from the dead bodily, that's great. That you're doing well. And if you don't believe it, that's okay too. No big deal. No biggie. Just you know." Uh, we just need to love each other and not persecute each other for your different beliefs. It's okay if you have doubts about that. No, that's not what Paul did at all. Okay. Now, regarding other religions, did Paul say, hey, listen, you know, you uh, you guys believe what you want to believe, and you, you you can believe in ISIS, or you can believe in, uh, you know, in... in uh, um, uh, Artemis, or you can believe in Zeus. That's no, no big deal, no big deal. Go ahead, you know, live and let live. I don't want to persecute you for ha- for believing in a different god than I believe in. No, that's not what Paul did at all. Paul over and again called people who were worshiping idols. He called them worthless idols, and he called them to stop worshiping those worthless idols, to repent and be forgiven. And believe in the one true God, who is God incarnate, Jesus Christ. That's Paul's message over and again. Was that persecution of people's religious beliefs? Some may view it that way. The Jews took very serious umbrage with the gospel that Paul preached, and they considered him to be an enemy of Judaism, and they persecuted him and wanted him dead. Okay? That's what how he, you know some reacted. But in reality, since Jesus Christ is the one true God, and he died on the cross for our sins, was Paul persecuting them or loving them by telling them the truth? That's what it comes down to. See, the problem with liberals is, is they want to hang on to their doubts, and they don't want to believe what the Bible says. They want to undermine it, and there are certain non-negotiable doctrines. Two of them come to mind that can be clearly demonstrated. One is the preaching of the gospel. What is the gospel? Paul says if someone comes to you preaching a gospel other than the one we already preached, let him be anathema, eternally condemned. If anyone comes to you, even if we or an angel from heaven were to preach to you a different gospel, let him be anathema. So the gospel itself, the content of the gospel itself, what the gospel is, is a non-negotiable and is to be defined in light of what what the Holy Spirit inspired, inspired the Apostle Paul to write, namely in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15. Christ died for our sins and was raised again on the third day. 
Mm-hmm. Paul expands that in Romans. It says he was raised again on the third day for our justification so that we would be declared righteous before God. So one of the non-negotiables is the very essence and teaching of the gospel itself. To deviate from it is to lose Christianity altogether and to be damned. Another non-negotiable, the bodily resurrection of Christ. That's clearly taught in the scriptures. So who are you going to believe? Paul Tillich and the liberals? Or are you going to believe what God has revealed in his word? As for the other non-negotiables, Christ's uh, being born of the Virgin Mary, that is a non-negotiable, because without that, Jesus isn't the Son of God in human flesh. He's just an ordinary Joe like you and I. Yeah, that, that uh, creates some problems there. Not only that, the Bible is found to be lying about Christ because it says he was born of the Virgin Mary. Was she a spiritual virgin or a physical virgin? Physical. Hello? Yeah, see... Yeah, Christianity does fall apart when you don't believe what the Scriptures say. You can't say the Scriptures are lying to you and then say that you are maintaining true Christianity. That's ridiculous. You can't have your cake and eat it too. There's a fear, so I find that we have to suppress others sometimes. And oppress others, really, a lot of the time because we're suppressed ourselves. And I think we see this so much in the church today. You know, I think we see it with, with pastors and preachers who, you know, I mean, they, they fight, you know, they, they fight their own sin. They fight their own shortcomings or they fight their own doubt. And uh, Now, I agree. There are some out there that are doing that. But to project that on everybody who defends the historic Christian faith, that's ridiculous. For fear, I think, of losing meaning in life. Because for believers, um, and I can speak on behalf of Christian believers, we are shown that the whole meaning of life has to do with Christianity, with God. And so all of a sudden, when you start to have those moments of questioning, you start to think, does my life mean anything? What does it all mean? You know, you... That's a great question. That's a and it 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 follows logically. If Jesus isn't really God in human flesh, he didn't really rise from the dead. Then how do I even know there really is a God? And if there isn't a God, does life have meaning? I mean, if we evolve from monkeys, you know that uh, Grandma and Grandpa Amoeba are my great 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 ancestors, and that uh, you know there is no God, then the, the 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 it's a logical question. Well, then what is the meaning of life? What if what if David Hawking's correct? Or is it Stephen Hawking? Sorry. Yeah, what if Stephen Hawking's correct and nothing created everything? Then is there any meaning to life? I'm just a you know, a bag of assembled amino acids and, you know, carbon tissues and stuff like that experiencing, you know, something called reality, but I mean, there is no real meaning to my life. That's that's a correct way of looking at it. You get to that one, and uh, it's a scary place. And then, you know, sometimes you'll go to preachers and say, well, I don't believe in God anymore, I don't do this, you know, and they'll just hammer you with why you're wrong or, or what you need to do. You know, and, and the, Okay, yeah, there are pastors out there who, if when you're having a crisis, 
uh, they may give you just they may give you the wrong answers or the wrong advice. Someone came to me and says, I don't believe in God anymore. I'd say, Tell me why tell me more. Why? What happened? What what's you know, sometimes with when people say I don't believe in God anymore, what they're really saying is Pastor, I can't live up to keeping the law anymore. I don't believe in the God of the Bible anymore because, you know, he he seems like he's just sitting up there with his arms folded, ready to zap my you know, my rear end uh, with lightning bolts and throw me into hell if I even you know stick a toe out of line. And yet I'm constantly sticking toes out of line. I can't live up to his standard. That might be what's really going on. I've had conversations with people that went that way. And in which case, I point them back to the gospel, the forgiveness of sins for them, the incarnate Christ hanging dead on the cross for them, because that's what they really need. And sometimes it's just true doubts. Maybe a, an evolutionist has gotten a hold of them. In that case, the, this, the, what's called for in that situation is different than somebody who's having doubts because they're not living up to the, God's moral law. Doubts arise for many different reasons, and you need to take the time to listen and find out what's going on. I'm curious, has anybody here ever been in that case where you've either persecuted someone out of your own fear, you know, or or have you been a victim of it? You have? Both, yeah. You want to come up here for a second? If you're not scared, if you're scared, stay back. No, or nervous or whatever, scared. I know you're not scared. <laughs> right here. You know? Hi, Jonathan, I'm Jay. Do you want to take a couple minutes? Well, I really struggled with the fundamentalist point of view because... Like you said before, I felt that if the resurrection didn't happen or the virgin birth didn't happen, then then this really doesn't mean anything. And then, you know, I look at other faiths. I've explored Buddhism and, and Islam and, you know, agnosticism and atheism even, you know. And I just think that, uh, you know, I, I, meet, I meet a Buddhist back in the days when I was a hardcore fundamentalist, and I'd be like, dude, you're so wrong, you know. And now I'm like, I would persecute them a little bit because I was like, you know, you got to believe in Christ. Christ is the only way, you know, and Christ died and he rose again. And I got. To- so that's apparently fundamentalism. Telling somebody in another religion that Jesus is the only way they need to repent and be forgiven of their sins. Jesus is the only way. Hmm. That's historic biblical Christianity in the claims of Jesus Christ himself. Where I started, felt led more in opposite directions like okay oh man that is such a key thing did you hear what he said but i felt led in opposite directions i felt led i fe- well here's the deal if you felt led those feelings that you had you know that you, you felt led in a different direction than what christianity believes teaches and confesses quite frankly your feelings either deceived you or you were deceived by something else. But that was not the Holy Spirit that would lead you away from proclaiming Jesus Christ and Him crucified and as the only way of salvation. It's exactly what the Holy Spirit does. Studying Carl Jung or... I don't know. I just really kind of started learning to 
shed the fundamental. Because when I got saved, I was like 15 years old, and I was in a um, Pentecostal church, and they were very legalistic and very. Um, there it is, legalistic Pentecostalism. Literal-minded and stuff, and I still struggle with that. Because, like you said, you know, I don't know if the resurrection didn't happen, then I mean, then this is lunacy that, to think that Christ is the the only way. So, basically, what I'm saying is, because uh, I'm learning to be more um, open-minded, but it's difficult for me. And I have persecuted people in the past who didn't believe the way I believe, but now I've let it go. Cool. Thanks, man. Thank you. Wow. We continue. Participation. I love it. That was great. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is. It is amazing. Um, when you start to realize, if you read the Bible, then you realize some things don't add up, and what you will do to make them add up, or if you find a contradiction, and what you will do to make that contradiction contradiction line up, rather than being able to sit in that and realize that that's the complexity of God and grace. And even these guys who are writing and following Jesus saying, you know, there's all these different situations and all these different things that are happening, and each situation sometimes calls for a different action or reaction. You know, it's not this just let's put it in a box, and so often it seems like we're trying to put it in the box, and when it doesn't fit in that box, you know, it's time to persecute someone for not being in our box. But this is the weakness of the fanatic or the fundamentalist. Those we fight have a secret hold on us. There's a fear to lose one's meaning in life, which can activate one's anxiety of non-being, seeing one's life as meaningless. So what we realize is those that we try to suppress because they were fear of them, they hold a connection. I mean they hold a they I mean they have a secret hold on us. And you see things like we'll do, you know, write books and I mean I'm guilty of this too, you know. I'll write books and I'll name preachers who do this or do that. You know, because there's maybe a secret hold there. I don't like admitting that. It doesn't feel really good. But I think uh does that show his Inherent hypocrisy? I think so. Get something to look at, um, even if it's just the fear of becoming them. But it also might be the fear of recognizing something in recognizing a common ground. And when you look at someone that you despise and you see a common ground there, it really makes you shaky. It really rocks your self. And it's just. <clears throat> Did you hear that? When you look at somebody you despise. Now here, here's the difference. I don't despise. The people in the emergent church. I don't, I, I hate their theology, but I see the person is separate than the theology. Does that make sense? See, I'm not my theology. No, I'm, I'm not. They're not their theologies. I don't hate and despise them. I love them for the sake of Christ and wish that they would repent and be forgiven for their false doctrine. I hate their false doctrine, but I don't hate them. It's easier to uh, fight them as you fight it yourself. 
And I think that's why we have so many very extreme legalistic people in this world who are just so set on it having to be literal and it having to be this is because there is a great fear of it not meaning anything. So I wonder if we can psychologize the Apostle Paul then, who said that if Christ is not raised, then our faith is futile and it's in vain and we should be pitied. I mean, we should psychologize him. I mean, basically, he was just afraid of meaninglessness. And so he built this theological house of cards that hinged on the bodily resurrection of Christ. doesn't make any sense. So when we have this fear of non-being or seeing one's life as meaningless, which can cause some to fight with everything they have to stop the meaningless doubt, and the doubt they see in you, which causes them to see them their own life. It's fight. Uh, no. Um, I defend the Christian faith so that people don't go to hell. Plain and simple. Now, I readily admit that my life would be completely meaningless if God didn't exist. So would your life. That's just a logical consequence of... You understand what I'm saying. But uh, I'm not fighting meaninglessness. In fact, I'm defending meaningfulness because I found the truth. I want to share it with others, and I see false doctrine as a form of bondage, a form of slavery. That's what sin is, and idolatry is is slavery. Slavery to a false set of propositions that keep us away from God and cause us to worship God and believe in God falsely or to believe falsely about God. Jesus says you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So we proclaim the truth. See the difference? In the mirror. You know, I'm I'm starting with the man in the mirror. She don't want me to sing tomorrow night? I'll do that one. (laughs) Make a change. Um... I fought with the mirror my whole life, you know. I honestly, I went to counseling a long time in in Atlanta because I hated the reflection that I saw. And uh, I mean, literally, I just physically saw myself in the mirror and hated myself. And it's amazing how you will avoid mirrors and avoid that reflection. Um, This event I was at, I had a after I spoke, and I actually kind of. Pointed somebody out, a, a radio host who does not agree with me at all, uh, who goes by Pirate Christian. Um, kind of. Okay, this is him talking about our um, spirited conversation. Pointed him out in the middle, and then I walked out, and he caught up with me, and we had a, a large argument. Um, and I, I mean, and I was in the dumps for like four hours, and so I, as I've been preparing this and thinking about this, and 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 uh, I, I see some things. Um, as I was arguing with, with, I think Chris is his name, I said, you know, you judge people and you do this and you say bad things about my friends and you call us heretics and stuff like that. And, and, and very clearly he said, but don't you think I'm a heretic? You know, aren't you saying that I do that? Aren't you judging me for judging people? And for a, a moment there I saw, holy crap, we're on completely two different ends. But I'm right because 
well, I'm, I feel good about it, <laughs> and I'm standing up. And he's right because the Bible says so, you know. And we've got these these two different situations, but we're both fighting a battle. As a matter of fact, it's almost as though when we come together, that's the battle. You know, it's like he's fighting the battle for literalism. I'm fighting the battle for, you know, how I think the Bible was written and supposed to be understood. And, and, and all of a sudden we're face-to-face and we're arguing. And I think a lot of that had to do with seeing some things I was familiar with in myself and maybe taking a second look at things, you know. He's a critic of the uh, the uh, of a lot of the church, you know. I, I told him, I said, you don't even like people that I like or you don't even like people I don't like. Like, do you like anybody? Um, uh, you know, I never did answer the question during the conversation because it was uh, kind of a throwaway line. Um, but let me answer it now. Um, the answer, if you listen to the uh, to the program and you listen to the good sermon reviews or the uh, Friday light uh, portions of Fighting for the Faith, you'll you'll get the understanding that uh, that I will feature men. Have we featured any women? Uh, I will feature you know people who proclaim the historic Christian faith, regardless of the denominational brand they fly under. As a result, we've played Calvinists, Lutherans, I mean, some just generic evangelicals, Baptists. I mean, there's different people that we've played here. And the reason why I feature them when I feature them that way is because what they're preaching is what the church has taught from the beginning. And they're defending what the church has believed, taught, and confessed from the beginning. And when I mean the beginning of the church— I'm not talking about Christ's ascension into heaven. I'm talking about the Abrahamic covenant, that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. That's what I'm talking about, which is what the Christian church proclaims. Salvation by grace through faith on account of what Christ did for us on the cross, his propitiatory, substitutionary, vicarious death on the cross for our sins, and his bodily resurrection from the grave, and all the doctrines that hinge on that truth, that hinge on that central claim. So the answer is, I, yeah, I like all kinds of, of theologies and theologians out there. Love a lot of them. Disagree with some people on on quite a few things, but what we do, if you listen to the sermon reviews, we take to task those people who falsely teach about God and who mangle and twist His words and and make assertions about God that cannot be founded from the clear teachings of the Scriptures. And so, and he asked me, he says, "So what you're basically saying is you're a literalist and you hate people who aren't literal." And I told him, I said, some passages of Scripture are to be taken literally. Others are not. For instance, Jesus, when he says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you know, you who slay the prophets, oh, how I would have gathered you like a hen gathers her chicks. That does not mean that Jesus was a big chicken boy. No, not at all. Jesus was not a hen. He did not have feathers. He, Jesus never once preened his feathers. Um, you get what I'm saying. So, you know, yeah, historical narrative, literal history, poetry, poetry, uh, apocalyptic literature, really tough to understand. There's uh, there's significant meaning wrapped up and shrouded in in uh, highly, highly uh, um, symbolic uh, word pictures. So, yeah, I'd. 
I don't have a flat reading of scripture, but when if it's historical narrative, it's historical narrative. We got to deal with it and what it says. We can't. We we it does nobody any good to basically say, listen, uh, when uh, God judged uh, the Canaanites and had Joshua come in and kill people, it doesn't do anybody any good to say, oh no, God didn't really do that. That's just myth. No, God really did do that. You're going to have to deal with God's nature in its fullness, both His love and His justice, both His wrath and His grace. Because that's how God has revealed himself. We continue. But that showed me that, you know, I, uh, he, he has a particular way of saying we've got to, the church has got to change and the church has got to come back to literalism. And I've got another way where I'm saying the church has got to change. We've got to start loving each other and be more this way. Um, I am not going to completely say that I'm wrong for that. But what I am going to say is that I need to look at that and check my motivation because I did see a mirror there. I did see something I recognized in myself. And uh, it's it's good to realize that. Okay, I'm going to pause here for a second. <clears throat> Jay, I'm not talking to you at the moment. I'm talking to my listeners and my critics who are who think I've compromised by being friendly and kind and engaging you in conversation and things like that. Um, based on what Jay Baker has said, what do you think the nature of my friendship is with the other emergence? It's the same. So Jay at this point is an acquaintance. I can't say we're friends, but we had a good conversation, and I look forward to having more with him. I think there's much good that can come of that. But he, you know, the conversation, I bluntly pointed out his hypocrisy. And he's confessed that he found it challenging, and he's thought about it. In fact, he even apologized to me, and I told him I forgave him. Let's continue. A lot of the time, the fear that is created can be the fear of a new idea. The courage to replace the old idea with the new. When with the new, there are no norms or criteria and criteria. The new is a risk which is measured by the old. It, when we measure it by the old, is we can't calculate it. It's, it, it's, it. You can't count the cost. When you measure it by, it, it just can't calculable it, calculate it, whatever. You just can't measure it to the old because you're taking new risks and you're saying new things. And some of these stuff is not that new. I mean, you know, the guy I'm reading, when he died in 1965. Um, he was having these thoughts a long time ago, and I'm sure there's probably someone before him having these similar thoughts. But the point being is, is when things especially are new to us and going into uncharted territories and we don't know how to measure it, it's really hard. For me, um, two people have, have said these things to me. Other people who have been my critics have said this stuff, but I always usually take the people who love me. Or seem to love me first. <laughs> you know, one time Vince said, "I have to make sure not to talk about the church or um, or condemn the church." You know, because you know you you do that very frequently. And I was like, "Wow," you know. And um, and I felt that, but you know, I've been doing it so long; it's hard to not do it. And then Pete came at it a different way. 
He said, you're trying to change the church from the inside and do all this stuff, and it's not working, and it's not possible, and you need to do this, like, he has another word for it. He doesn't like the third way, but I'm going to go ahead and use that anyway. He's like, we have to do a third way and set an example outside of the church and allow them to see, you know, this third way. We're going to do it this way. We're going to set the example because we don't, you know, those aren't us anymore. You know, fighting is not getting us anywhere fast. Trying to win this way is not getting anywhere. So we're going to try to set an example of what community looks like. What happens when people are actually able to get honest with each other and share their fears and their doubts? You know, when we lay everything, maybe not even at the door, but maybe on the floor. You know, and we become a community and, and deal with these situations with each other. I mean, that's why me and Vince have been talking about community like crazy. I guess going out of style for what, about two months now? And I have to say, it's been pretty awesome to see a lot of you guys hanging out more and talking to each other, and that's great. And and that's the beginning of us being able to share a lot of pain, a lot of hurt, a lot of doubts, a lot of fears, you know, to see what we're suppressing or if we're suppressing something in someone else. So the idea is, is well, how do I measure what this new idea is going to be, or how do I count the cost? I felt like when I took a stand for LGBT rights and announced that I was gay affirming, I was able to count the cost, and I was pretty right on. You know, we lost our big donor. Um, <laughs> had to lay off the whole staff and didn't speak for a year. Um, and I knew something like that would happen, and, and it did. But with this, is like, how do we count the cost? We don't know what it is. Now I might even have to get in really deep, intimate, personal relationships with the congregation. <laughs> oh, my! Um, you know, but that's... Loving people isn't always the best, most... Be- well, it is the best, but it's not always the easiest thing to do. And entering into a relationship and being asked to enter into a community isn't very easy either. You know, it's like we want to... We all want to be in a community, but then there's times where it's just like something uncomfortable happens. Or maybe there's someone who's particularly uncomfortable amongst the whole community. Is like, that guy's crazy. How can we push them out of the community? That is not how you do community, though. And it's a really tough thing. Trust me, I've had them. Guys like that. And I've actually, at pretty good times, pushed them out of the community when I shouldn't have. What is the cost? We'll just have to wait and see. You can be caged by doubt. Doubt that comes from the old. Business as usual. Getting set in our routine. Like saying, well, I know I've got to straighten out the church and I've got to go within the church and I've got to tell these people they better start showing grace to each other or they're all going to be in big trouble. Very good at using something that was beautiful and made for love and, 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 and freedom to just turning it into a weapon. Damn it, Jesus loves you. You know, straighten up, cool your jets. My mom used to always tell me to cool my jets. So, um, so doing the new can be caged by the doubt of the old. And, and, and it was just like, um, what was your name again? I'm sorry. Jonathan was saying, you know, it's like it's hard to fight those old thoughts and those old feelings. And all of us have these old, like, you know, who grew up in the church. Um, and some of you have been um, lucky enough not to. Um, especially legalistic church where those thoughts come, you know, where you start feeling like, oh about this, you know, and, well, I'm glad I didn't say that. You know, I have this, like, this little type of judgmental stuff. It's like, Vince said that, not me. Um, 
Because you have the business as usual. You have the old coming in and trying to cage the new because the new is seems to have no limits. It seems to be a free-range idea. And uh, no, because the new, just like every other new, contradicts the clear teaching of the Word of God. It, what did Jude say? The faith once for all delivered to the saints. Hello? It ceased to be the faith when uh, we're not preaching what has been once and for all delivered. Christ and him crucified for our sins. Now, I agree there's a bunch of legalists out there who uh, uh, they wouldn't know the gospel if they tripped over it. That doesn't mean that you throw out every tenet of the faith and just go with some new free-range idea. Go back to the scriptures and find the gospel is what you should be doing. And that can be scary because you don't know where the idea is going to end up. It can be like the lost sheep. You know, you have to leave these 99, even though that seems like the secure place to be, to go find the one. And what has happened and where has the one gone? Um, Sometimes it's a mystery. And that's, to me, why it's important that we don't lose self and we don't lose the spirit. And we don't allow just those in our community to speak into our lives, but we listen and allow other people outside who may be able to see something a lot more clearer than we do. Um, I like it looking at the idea of you know the fear of doubt and the fear of this stuff, and, and but you know doubt is is such a necessary tool of knowledge. There's been so many things that I've doubted in the Bible, or I finally thought. You know, I love grace, but I always doubted it. For the first probably 10 years of preaching grace, I seriously doubted it. And I was always waiting for the other shoe to drop. You know, bring, and that's why I know Greek. Well, that's why I've read in Greek, and that's why I've read in Hebrew and all that stuff. It wasn't because I was like, oh, I'm so hungry for the word. It was like, God hates me, and I'm going to prove it, you know? Um, <laughs> no matter what it takes. You know, and I did studies on holiness and all these different things, and... and uh, but what I found out from all that doubt of God being a loving God, I found out that God was a loving God, more loving than I could grasp, and that I was able to accept that I was accepted the majority of the time in order to take the journey that I needed to do. You know, even when the bottom fell out of my life, I was still able to continue in a journey because at times I really did doubt. You know, it's like sometimes when I'm in a bad mood and I feel crazy. You know, I'm like, everything's falling apart. The world is horrible. I know I just got to go to sleep. And I'll wake up and feel better the next day. You know? So, but I don't, I know that because I did take a nap. Or because I did go to sleep one night and wake up and feel better the next day. You know? Because I could remember my dad being like, you just think too much, son. You need to rest. Or my mom would always be like, feed him. He needs to eat. He's in a bad mood. Just give him some food. He'll be happy about me. You know? I was like, ugh. And she was the same way, though. Because she'd get a bit crazy when she didn't eat. Um... You know, like, no, I'm just mad at the world. It has nothing to do with, you know. I doubt that food's going to even make a difference. And then I eat it, and I'm like, oh, hey, let's go shopping. (laughs) Um, But doubt is a necessary tool of knowledge. Meaningless is no threat. (laughs) No. Doesn't that seem weird? Meaningless is no threat. But this is something I got from this book, and it wasn't even a part of the book that I was bringing some of this stuff to you guys from. But I liked it, and I, I took it anyway. And it meaningless is no threat as long as the enthusiasm is for the universe and for man or men, for the others. Um, because I feel like 
and I've seen Vince do it, you know, when Vince's dad passed and he, he, he uh, pretty much felt like an atheist or was an atheist. And But the enthusiasm, I think, for the world and for people and for his congregation here and at Monday night congregation and Sabbath, <laughs> true Sabbath congregation, um, was something that seemed to keep the enthusiasm alive. So I think when we have our moments of doubt, moments of disbelief, even moments of meaningless, I think ways to deal with that is to be enthusiastic to love your neighbor as yourself. You know, send some money to somebody, you know, like some, you know, don't ask it for, don't ask for it back, you know. Support Darfur, you know, watch a documentary on something and then make a change. I think these are things that help us get through doubt. And if it wasn't for those moments of doubt, maybe we would have never found our purpose. You know, maybe we would have never found the courage to be had it not been for those moments to doubt. And in order to have really courage, you have to be in a situation that requires more of you. A moment that you're not sure you're going to make it through. Courage is grace is a result and a question. Courage as grace is a result and a question. The result I feel like I have to I'm living in all the time. But that's also because that result is a part of a question, a constant question. And grace has allowed me to ask these questions and to be uncomfortable and to be able to get up here and share with people that I'm very uncomfortable a lot of the time in my life, in my own skin. I mean, I was just at, at this event, you know, I'm just like, Mr. Like, I don't belong here. <laughs> Nobody loves me. I'm going to hit worms. I'm 34. I'm the, I was the youngest one there, um, almost. But it was like insecurity and all this stuff takes over. And thinking you don't belong, even though you've worked harder your life and you've tried to say these things. And I just had to allow grace to be my courage. And yeah, I question it, but I question it to people around me who I love and care about and, and seek their wisdom and understanding. And I really kind of hope that that's what revolution's going to do. You know, as, as people here, I mean, it's just like there's things from Chris that when I went through things and we talked about things and he was just so nonchalant about it that it gave me the courage to, to be. It gave me the courage to live in grace and to make it through another week. We were uh, going in the car to the event yesterday. And I was like, started to get, or no, we were coming back. Was it going or coming back? I think it was going, actually. And there was a, a guy who kind of looked like Santa Claus, who's a counselor. And I was talking about, well, what do you think about this event, you know, planning for the future and doing all these stuff? And he's like, you know, sometimes I just believe we have to live in the here and now. And we just have to do what we're called to do in, the, in this moment and not always be trying to focus on it, like getting a vehicle to go from here to there. Sometimes we have to have the courage to, to be, if you will. And I realized I was going to sleep better that night because I was able to live in those moments and not worry about tomorrow. 
you know, how am I going to pay my bills? What, what's coming on this way? And not that we shouldn't worry and plan about things. Or, I mean, worry really doesn't add a moment to your life, but not that we shouldn't think about the future. But at that point, I was able to have the courage to be in the moment. And uh, funny how quickly I forgot after I got in the argument. And then for like four hours, like Pete said when he came in, it was like I walked into the place. He was talking to somebody, and I walked into the hotel. He was like, did it just get cold in here? It was like Darth Vader walking through the room. I feel the presence I haven't felt in a long time. <laughs> you know, it's just one of those things where it's like I was just, I'm uncomfortable. I feel bad. I'm angry. I'm upset. And I'm confused. And it's, you know, here it is, you know. And uh, for about four hours, I guess, I forgot to live in the now. And then I remembered, you know. He made a mistake, move on. I talked about it on, on Facebook, and everybody was like, man, just move on. It's okay. It was so nice to just hear these folks who were just saying, like, all right, that was a moment in time. Now I have the courage to be in this moment. You know, it was, it was really a beautiful thing. To doubt is, div- is divine. Um, if you want to read the Bible, which I, I recommend you do, um, you will find that most of the prophets, and even Jesus himself, and all these guys had doubt, except for maybe Paul because he didn't like to show it, but I'm sure he had plenty of it. <laughs> it proves that he doubted a lot because he didn't talk about it much. <laughs> but um, but to doubt is divine because everything we've just been talking about. But God gives us the courage to live in the midst of doubt without crushing us. Isn't that strange? I doubt you, God, but God gives me the courage anyway to doubt God and to live in the midst of that. I cannot really feel like I can do it justice in any language or even written down, but all I can do is explain it to you that I felt it. And sometimes that chasm of doubt that you feel that you have to walk over and actually maybe even get to the point of complete abandonment and disbelief seems like such a scary place to walk over and uh, it seems like it's a billion miles away and then you realize maybe sometimes that maybe it was just a puddle or something like that because once you lay your foot down and you make it through that area something happens and something bigger than you something bigger than the community something bigger happens that I can't explain you know, I mean, maybe I can give it this the peace that passes all understanding, including my own. <laughs> so I feel like we don't need to hide behind fundamentalisms or legalisms or any isms, or we don't have to close our heads and minds down. Okay, I just got to point this out. Liberalism, even emergent liberalism, has its own fundamentalism to it. It is tolerant of all ideas as long as those ideas are not intolerant. Much better to just quit with the pretensions, quit with the show, the pietistic show that somehow we're all-inclusive and understand that each position believes that it's true, and it's time to open up the scriptures and see which one really correctly handles God's word and and can be sustained from the clear teachings of the text. 
That was my point to Jay. He thinks I'm a heretic. He thinks I mishandle God's word. Likewise, so do I. So now let's get into the text and see what the text says. So we can hide from the, the truth in order to feel comfortable. And then, then you know, the next thing you know, that spreads to trying to keep the other people from asking the questions or looking for truths. So I believe that God is, will, gives us that courage to doubt. If you can live your life and sometimes feel that there is no meaning, but still help other people find meaning or add to their quality of life or make it just a little bit less of hell in their own life. I think that's the divine, you know, giving us that courage to live in the midst of it. And uh, I'm grateful for that. So I hope we all find the courage to be. Okay, I'm going to stop right there, and I want to read a passage from the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 9, verse 14. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? Some from the crowd answered, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, and Jesus answered them, O oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring the boy to me. And they brought the boy to him, and when the Spirit saw Jesus, immediately convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground, and he rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening? I want to point something out in this text. Here you have a, a boy who is in the throes of a demonic attack. He's convulsing on the ground, rolling around, foaming at the mouth. His eyes are spinning around in his head. And Jesus stops paying attention to the boy to look at his father and asks a question. How long has this been happening to him? And the man said, well, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water in order to destroy him. But if, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And now we find out why Jesus asked this guy this question and left the boy in the middle of that convulsions. Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I do believe. Please help my unbelief. 
And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said, This kind cannot be driven out by anything except for prayer. Now notice, Jesus didn't only confront the demon, he confronted this man's unbelief. Christians from the earliest times of the church have been called believers. Doubt is not divine. Doubt is one of the tools of the enemy. At least when it refers to doubting God's word or doubting Christ. Christ calls us to faith. Christ calls us to trust. Christ calls us to belief. A theology that embraces doubt and teaches us to doubt God's word, to doubt the claims of Christ, to doubt the claims of the eyewitnesses regarding Christ and regarding God, those are not Christian doubts. Quite the contrary, they're the opposite. That is not Christian theology. Christ calls us to doubt of our own righteousness, to doubt of our own ability to please God, to doubt in our own works and to consider them all as rubbish, and to trust in Him, and believe in Him, and have faith in Him, that He is the one who has done it all for us, who loves us and died on the cross for our sins. That God's grace is amazing, because it applies to sinners as wretched as me, and as wretched as you. Faith and doubt properly applied are good things. Doubt in Christ, doubt in his word, doubt in the eyewitness testimony regarding Christ, all undermined biblical faith. And what are you left with? Human speculation that thinks that it's hearing from God through some new move of the Spirit, when it's not. Something to consider. All right, we're at the end of another edition of Fighting for the Faith. need to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you. If you do not already partner with us financially, please consider doing so. In fact, do more than consider it. (laughs) Act on it. The way you act on it is by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to partner with us with, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it along to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. So there you have it. 
What do you think? I'd love to get your feedback. Do you think my friendship with uh, Emergence is based upon affirmation of their theology? Or is my friendship actually built of, of on all things dissent? I think the proof is in the pudding. What do you think? Love to get your feedback. You can email me. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Until tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and the mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of our sins. Amen. <laughs>